Um, the third film that I've chosen um, of this list is Ryan Johnson's first film, Brick, which was released in 2005. Brendan? Mm-hmm. I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good. No. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just want to know she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. So you didn't know this boy? No, sir. Never seen him. And he just hit you. He asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. You're coming into a certain situation. It's twisted. I'm looking for Emily. You left her? Yeah, I did. You better be sure you want to know that you want to know. If I get to the bottom, whatever this is. What do you want? Just to see you sweat. It gets too hot. You got discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend me. I see that you're trying to help her. And I don't know anybody who would do that for me. You are dangerous. I set out to now put her on the spot. I put her in front of the gun. There's not much chance of coming out clean. I mean, I've chosen this for, I guess, for a number of reasons, but just to, to give a, a brief synopsis of the film. Um, so... The film starts with uh, uh, Brendan, uh, played by Joseph, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and not long after receiving a pretty frantic phone call from his ex-girlfriend, Emily, um, teenage loner Brendan uh, finds out that her dead body has been found, so he decides to hide her body and solve the murder himself because um, he feels that there's some suspicious circumstances to the whole thing. And as typical of, of films like this, um, he, he mistrusts or distrusts the police that they'll get to the, to the bottom of this. So he has to infiltrate um, some high school cliques that effectively he avoids because he is, you know, he's this loner character that kind of does things on his own. Um, but as the film develops and his investigation gets deeper and deeper, he has uh, various run-ins with, you know, some of the school's toughest characters and a bunch of underlings um, that lead to a, a, a confrontation with a drug dealer um, known as The Pin, um, and it's played uh, by Lucas Haas. So even through the, the synopsis and describing it to, to people that maybe haven't seen the film, um, Ryan Johnson was really inspired by uh, books of Dashiell Hammett um, and his crime novels of uh, the... I guess the 40s and 50s. Yeah. And there's an element to it which is he's he's effectively he's, he's updated these stories and brought them into a, you know, a modern context and hence this idea of setting the entire thing around a, a high school um in California. So the aspect of of the way that they talk is very much rooted in that film noir. So it's effectively an an update of a film noir. So if we're talking about you know, post-film noirs or latter-day film noirs. It's got all the, the trademarks and hallmarks of, of film noir with, um, you know, femme fatales and crooked cops, which in this context are not really the cops. They're like the high school teachers and the principal. Mm. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Brendan, is effectively the grizzled detective. 
um, the ones that you would have found in all of those original film noirs, of you know, played by you know Humphrey Bogart, most popularly and famously. Um, and then there's the eccentric crime kingpin in this case, you know, the pin, which I I find quite funny because you're thinking about the kingpin and it's it, you know played by Lucas Haas. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's these these tough you know underlings. There's one of them called Tugger. Um, there's another one called Dode. There's lots of these different characters. There's also someone that's, you know, effectively plays, you know, like an asset and an ally to um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, and his name is The Brain, mm. uh, played by uh, Matt O'Leary. So they've got all the the, the 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 hallmarks and the trademarks of something that that feels very much rooted in that, you know, traditional film noir and the American detective, you know, film and the American detective noir thriller of that time and what I think makes it work so well it, it, and it's one of those films that I don't think you know across the board is something that people love but I think the people that love it in the same ways that maybe with Donnie Darko and The Cell and other films that we've spoken about really love it you know they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're massive devotees to the film and it did kickstart Ryan you know Johnson's career you know most recently he ended up doing uh, Knives Out um, which I think there's like a second part and a third part coming out. He also did a Star Wars film. He did a, a film also with Joseph Gordon-Levitt a little bit later called um, Looper, which yeah. is a, another phenomenal film uh, with Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which is like a time travel type film. But this this you know an initial film that he did was mi- you know minute budget, very indie. Um, again, was something that had a very particular voice. You know, you could really see a clear authorial voice coming through the film it has comedy you know the the language itself is is, is quite interesting because I was thinking about this before and I was and I was looking at the the reasons that I think you know the film worked for me and although a lot of people can can criticize and just say okay well sometimes when you've got the a script like this and they're, they're they're speaking in these massively rehearsed methods of talking um a lot of people get it almost puts them off that they 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 didn't feel as engaged with the characters and I you know I read this in various reviews but because I think Ryan Johnson said that he was quite inspired by things like Miller's Crossing um you know the Coen Brothers film which again was you know a noir but that was set more in the time frame that it was you know discussing um but it was also inspired by things like A Clockwork Orange and mm. when you think about, you know, the language that's used there, um, I don't see it as any different to those types of films that, because effectively with Anthony Burgess, you know, in A Clockwork Orange, there's a contemporary setting, you know, or a futuristic setting, but it's using a language, especially with, you know, Alex, the main protagonist, which is of its own. It's quite a unique language. And in Miller's Crossing as well, they, they kind of root it very clearly in that sort of language. But also if you think of something like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. which had a very contemporary setting, but again was taking Shakespearean language and using it, you know, transporting it from its origin into something of, of a modern day. And there's quite a few films that do that with Shakespeare, aren't there? Like 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah. Um, you know, so... But but I also saw that there's like elements to it. And I remember as a kid seeing things like Bugsy Malone and Bugsy Malone had that language. Again, it was, 
you had to get your head around the idea of these are kids playing these roles, you know, with their splatter guns, with cream cakes and all that sort of stuff. But I think once you get into it, you really get sucked in. And I remember also seeing in an interview with Ryan Johnson that when he was, when he first, you know, he wrote the story in 1997 or something straight out of film school. And although the film was released 2005, we all know that it can take a very, very long time before you get the reins to a feature film if you're doing loads of shorts. But when he wanted to do it, he wanted to do it a little bit more in an Altman-esque style where it would be a very off the cuff and it would be quite relaxed. But he realized that if he if he had this um, tone, if he was using this language and trying to be as, as authentic as he possibly could to root it really closely to the film noirs, the classic film noirs of the 40s and 50s, they couldn't do it that way. They had to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And that's why when you watch the film, it, it feels um, like a very well-organized, structured um, uh, script. Yeah. In the same way that you'll find in Coen Brothers scripts. Because the Coen Brothers as well, they, they never veer off. Sometimes it might sound like it's a little bit off the cuff. But you can really hear with a lot of Coen Brothers, again... That they're, you know, that they don't veer from the script. It's like people have to stick religiously to it. And he had a very young cast, although Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Lucas Haas have been around for a very long time in, in films since they were, I don't know, five or six years old. The rest of the cast were essentially newcomers. So it was a risky film, but it it did very well at Sundance. I think it it won uh, Ryan Johnson a few awards. I think is is the best new voice. And it's just a really, really great film, not just for the language and the, the, because you could look at it and just say it's a little bit of a shtick, but I think because it keeps that authenticity, it's it's really, really convincing. I think the, the, the cast are really convincing to make the whole premise work because it's not a tongue in cheek. It's not like something like Bugsy Malone where it's tongue in cheek. They play it straight down the middle. Mm. Um, I think that the story itself is really well crafted and it keeps in some of those best noir films. I think there's elements about it that are quite confusing. And and when you think sometimes of the best, you know, films that came out, you know, like Maltese Falcon um, or The Big Sleep, they're open-ended. They are confusing. They're yeah. quite difficult to, to unpick. And again, I think Ryan Johnson kept quite closely to that, that, that these aren't easy films to, to get the nub of, even by the time you get to the end. I think I had to watch the film about two or three times to to make full coherent sense of even yeah. what happens at the end yeah but but it keeps you guessing um i think uh, the fact that it it has all of these key ingredients is great i think it's got an edge of cool to it which is you know setting it in high school and feeling like again it's dealing a little bit with those themes of adolescence because you could transplant these things back into adolescence the idea of the 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 loner at high school the one who's slightly outside of the group but is also accessible to all those different groups you know there's the uh, peer pressure aspect that I think you could root back to adolescence that then probably plays a little bit later in life but I think all of those factors that come into film noirs could just as easily be placed within a high school setting yeah um and they work um and I think there was, you know, what what you what I I found in the films. I mean, there's there's a lot of the trademarks that you end up seeing in the later films of Ryan Johnson. You know, like there's there's a noir nostalgia that I think comes through in quite a few of his films. 
you know, he uses slow motion quite a lot. Um, he's got the same cinematographer, Steve Yedlin, that, that was, you know, the first time they worked together was on this film and they worked a lot, you know, on subsequent films. And there's a quirky humor to the whole thing. So it's it just has all of these ingredients that really makes it work for me as a film that has all that confidence as a as a debut. Yeah, I I agree. I really, really like this movie. And I think you're right that the crucial the crucial thing is that it is not it's not cheeky it's never like winking um they play it straight mm. and i think i think you're right in saying that um the fact that they they really act it they're not they're never like looking at the camera and and acknowledging like oh you know we know this is silly we know we're teenagers talking like old-timey detectives uh they mm. don't do any of that and i think that would have been like an easy escape hatch to avoid criticism um Hmm. so i think it's pretty kind of brave actually that he would he would kind of go all in with that style without falling Hmm. without falling back on on kind of like laughing at himself um Hmm. and i think the the complexity of the story i remember the first time that i saw it as well and the the final monologue where he's he's kind of explaining the He's basically explaining the plot of the movie to the femme fatale. And yeah, to Laura. Yeah, and it's like a... I think it's like a five-minute explanation. And mm. when I saw the movie for the first time, I saw that as... I saw that as a weakness. And I, I, had, I remember I had to... Like you said, I had to rewatch that particular monologue probably five times to, to make heads or tails of it. But... Mm. Looking back, I think you're right, and I think it's that's another uh, example of his faithfulness to the genre because so many film noirs have that where the the lead detective, you know, finally puts all the puzzle pieces together and and kind of walks us through it basically, mm. and mm. it's you could say you know oh it's it's too convoluted or you know blah 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 but that's you know that's kind of the point these these are these are mysteries that are supposed to be almost like overwhelmingly complex or or impenetrable almost and mm. the that the that the detective character is able to kind of punch through that and finally figure it out um is and what's the part of the appeal along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wants 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 to fill you in at the end, and it's and it's interesting because Knives Out has the same thing. Yep, it's not it's not rooted as the same type of movie because it's more of a, like a classic detective type film, um, but it still does that thing at the end where it's like the detective comes in and explains to everyone who's the murderer. Yeah, and, you know what was the motive and all that sort of stuff, and I think. That happens, you know, in this story as well. But what I what I really like about it is that he also stays true to that in terms of the protagonist. You know, uh, Brendan's character is very much like those key detectives that you know, the Humphrey Bogart detectives. You know, the the idea that he's squeamish. He's also vulnerable because you know a couple of times Brendan faints. Hmm. You know, when it all gets a little bit too overwhelming. There's a vulnerability to him. He constantly gets beaten up left, right, and center throughout the whole film. <laughs> yeah. You know, so he's he's not the tough guy that we that we saw, like the Stallones and the Van Dams and all that sort of stuff in the 80s. Yeah. There's that vulnerability. And I think it was really nice to bring that character back again 
Mm. But and I think there was a lot of those types of movies that were coming around that sort of time that was bringing Shakespeare back. So I think it felt like it was the right sort of time for that thing to come back again. But I think film noirs, um, anyone that's watched enough of them, and I've, I've watched quite a few of them, you feel like you're a fan of that genre, that if you see something that echoes it, even when we see you know, neo-noirs or we see things like Blade Runner, you know, you have the same thing. You want to see the same sort of elements, the same yeah. recipe that goes into it. And he did it brilliantly. I mean, yes, you can you can argue that some of the characters, you know, like Laura's character, sometimes when they're speaking these things, you think they're teenagers and the language feels very mature. Yeah. Would someone like that say it? And it's like, well, no, they wouldn't. But that doesn't really matter in the same way that you would have high school's having Shakespeare yeah. being spouted by them because what you're doing is you're taking the story and you're actually trying to make sense of that story and be taken along with that character. But I, I, I just thought it was such an enjoyable film to watch. And I think that's one of the things that when I, when we think about what doesn't just work from a technical standpoint, but what works in terms of an audience, mm-hmm. I just felt that everything fit together beautifully. And even with the pin you know, and the leading up to the pin and then the double crosses and then who's to blame or what's happened. And, and it's, it's worth mentioning also that the brick from the title is a brick of heroin that had yeah. gone lost, that had gone missing. And that's at the root of everything because it was then said that Emily, who was the one that was murdered, she had stolen this brick. But you find a little bit later that it's not her, it's someone else. So it's like there's all these character interplays which... Unless you have the formula, which you have in film noirs, where you have the person that's double-crossed, you have the underling that's a little bit dumb, mm-hmm. that has the brawn but not the brains, and then you've got Brendan's character that's got the brains helping him out, and he's always constantly doing Rubik's Cubes. Mm-hmm. You know, he's sitting down doing puzzles in, in the class. And I just thought it was lovely the way it was set within a high school because the high school then pulls us into a slightly different genre, which is that coming-of-age type thing, doesn't it? Yeah, the you're right. school that struggles. And I, yeah, so I thought it was, I thought it was a really masterful little um, addition to it by actually placing it in a high school. Because the majority of it happens in that high school, which is, funnily enough, Ryan Johnson's high school, where he went to high school. Oh, really? So he was able to film there. Yeah. yeah I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it shows the, like the, I guess the universality of those stories too, you know, even mm. though the, even though the language is, is heightened and very stylized, uh, like you said, the you know, a lot of those those tropes, those characteristics, the loner, um, mm. that kind of stuff, that's 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 universal. That doesn't just belong in film noirs from, you know, 80 years ago. Mm. Mm. And great, great names. I mean, they had like names like The, the Lug the, yeah. and, you know, Brad Beamish and Biff <laughs> and Dode and The Brain and Tugger. And it's it's just it's it. Yeah, it just all came together really well for me. Yeah. It's a fun movie too. It's just fun to watch. And uh and mm. it uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think this was the one that sort of revitalized Levitt's acting career a bit too, right? Yeah, yeah, cuz he he did and you know again, he worked with him you know on on Looper, which to me is a is a stunning film. Again, not necessarily something that is uh, was massively successful on its release, but it did well. But it's a it's a clever film, and I think yeah. that's one of the things that also is is one of these elements that that makes Ryan Johnson a director you want 
to watch his films because he's he might be taking genre with uh, Knives Out, you know, where it's, uh, you know, it's the classic sort of detective film of, of you know, again, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, but I, again, what, what he does is he might take the genre and he adds some sort of spin. I'm not too sure about, you know, Star Wars because I think the franchise, he was a little bit hampered by the franchise. Yeah. But I think even with that, he attempts to bring in new stories and he brings his... Um, his trademarks to it. Like yeah. He loves le- using notes and he loves using the slow-mo and he loves using humor. Yeah. You know, like slaps, slapstick humor. And he brings that and he brought it even to, to you know, the Star Wars for the, for the Last Jedi. Yeah, for sure. I think he's one of those filmmakers where you can just tell, you can tell that he just like loves movies, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, his, his love, I guess, for, I suppose, classic, classical cinema really shines mm. through all this stuff. If it's a if it's a a high school noir or a science fiction film or Star Wars or whatever, you can just t- mm. it seems like he's always like just having a blast with whatever he's made. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And I think that's what makes it enjoyable. Yeah. So what uh, um, what's your third film then? All right. Uh so my third choice is uh might be a a strange juxtaposition against Brick. Um, but it is a, I think it's the newest of the films that we've been discussing and it's the Georgian film Beginning, directed by Dea Kulembegashvili and, uh, released in 2020 and it was very well received at, uh, at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, it was, in the official official selection for the 2020 Cannes Festival, uh, it also won some awards at the Toronto International Film Festival. So very well received. Uh, released, I believe, a year or so ago on the Mubi streaming service. Um, t- so it's it's a lot it's a lot more widely accessible now, thankfully, because I think it's just a fantastic film um, to give. A quick synopsis of it. Um, We have Yana, played by Ia Sukitasvili, and they're living in this sort of remote Georgian town, and her husband is a Jehovah's Witness preacher, and she and her family are are terrorized and brutalized by the local community and the police force, after this opening scene in which their their church is attacked and burned down. And the story is, on one level, uh, on kind of a surface level, I guess you can say, it's a story of religious persecution. But you can also see that it's a story of, a, of, this, of this woman, of Yana, who en- endures these unspeakable unspeakably violent acts and encounters and not just because of this hostile community who who clearly don't want the Jehovah's Witnesses there and want them gone uh, but she also suffers because of her husband's pride um, and his his sort of unwillingness to see the danger that he's putting his family in as a result of of uh, of his job, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. And 
it's a it's a very difficult watch, definitely, and mm, it's yeah, it's it's tough. It's a tough watch, but I I think it's just stunning. Um, and why it worked for me, this is this if it's definitely one of those films where after I saw it and did some research on it, it's like one of those like holy shit how did how did a first time director make this thing um and it's i think it showed for the the director uh Kulimbegashvili that there's a precociousness i think in this being her first feature film she's i think she was like 34 or 35 when she made it mm. and it's not you know, you get the sense that she's in in a way, maybe emulating some of the some of the older you know quote unquote masters, uh, her use of of static shots and these extended takes, might call Michael Haneke to mind, um, the way that she that she shoots and frames, uh, the environment and nature, had me thinking a little bit of Tarkovsky, um, but I think I think it's not. You can see those influences, but I think it's not that she's just emulating or copying these directors, but that in a way she's kind of matching them and she's putting her own her own spin on it. It still feels different, even though you can see those influences there. Mm. And I think the so like just the maturity of the of the film itself is very, very impressive. Uh, beautiful compositions, very precise almost like painterly compositions. Some of the interior shots in the family house with kind of the soft lighting, uh, they almost look like, like Vermeer paintings or something. And then the, mm. the static shots, uh, of course, the, even the opening shot, it's almost nine minutes long, of the opening shot inside of the church leading up to uh, someone throwing... I think it's sort of like a Molotov cocktail into the church and setting it on fire. Um, and f so from the get-go, from the first shot, it, you have this you know elaborate, um, very tense uh, sequence. And I think it, it really announces a, a unique, a really unique voice in, in world cinema. Um, a very bold film, I think, because mm -hmm. you have a you have a protagonist who Yana, who without a doubt elicits our sympathy because of just because of she's put through the ringer these horrible things that happened to her and that happened to her family, but then she herself does I don't want to reveal you know spoil too much but she herself does something terrible as well. And it's a so it's a very complex female character. Um, in a way, the movie's almost like a it's almost like a feminine riff on the on the biblical story of Abraham. And the and then I, finally, I have to mention the end of the film because I ninety five percent of the of the movie is is you know unbearably at times painfully realistic. But then there's this really, really beguiling, surreal ending sequence, and the the final shot 
in uh, in which a character kind of morphs into like a, a part of the earth and crumbles into the into this like rocky terrain and to be honest I mean I've thought a lot about this final shot and I think that's another reason the film is so powerful and so memorable is I'm still thinking about it months after I've seen it um, and I have my own I guess sort of interpretations of what that final scene might mean uh, mm. symb- you know symbolically or thematically but on another level, I, I still think, like, I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand what the hell that last shot means. Um, but I do know that it's, it's stunning and, and it's stayed with me and it's still, I'm still thinking about it. Um, and unlike the... Yeah, unlike all the other directors, I don't think any of the other directors we've spoken about are in this boat. She hasn't made another feature film yet, so... Because, again, this came out just two years ago, and I think I, you know, I just, I absolutely cannot wait to see what she comes up with next. Uh, we we have yet to see what what future Dea Kulim Begashvili films will look like, uh, but I, I eagerly await the next one. Um, and I know that mm. you... Uh, you very recently watched it, Gabriel. So I'd, I'm I'm very very interested to see what you your thoughts and and ideas on the film as well. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a great film, and I'm I'm really glad that you brought it to my attention because I hadn't heard about it. Maybe I might have read in some you know like Sight and Sound a while ago about the film, but it passed my radar completely. So when you brought it to my attention. And I ended up watching. I watched it through movie. Um, yeah, it's. I think that ambiguity you talk about with the last shot or the last scene, um, where you see the antagonist or one of the antagonists, yeah, turn into could be sand, could be salt. Because if we're talking about biblical analogies, you've got there is people turning into a pillar of salt lot turning into a pillar of salt yeah and then because of sin so there are but i don't think they've there everything in the film is clear clear cut so i think there's an ambiguity to it which is probably what film does really well is it alludes to or it suggests specific things because that scene at the very beginning where yana's husband is doing his sermon and he's bringing up the story of Abraham and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac to God, which talks about faith. Yeah. I, I felt that there was one aspect in the film which was Yana being sort on the outskirts, because although she's part of this community, she's also on the outskirts of the community. You really feel that she was someone, because I know the husband mentions it a couple of times, like he saved her from this life because she was an actress before right so he he seems to lord it over her and in a way to be able to say like he's the one that saved her so even the unspeakable things that happened later on when there is an antagonist and there's this detective that does something horrible to her it's almost like the husband because the husband is not really present in the film very often yeah he leaves her basically abandons her because he's going to rebuild or find some ways to rebuild you know, their church that has been burnt down. Yeah. 
and and leaves and leaves her and his son knowing that they're in in grave yeah, danger. Yeah, they're in, in grave danger because you know they can't. There is nothing. The, the the community is in danger. So so the idea of him abandoning her to that um, and the son is is one of those things that you feel that they're it's because it's a female not that I'm saying it's a female director, but I think from what I read and I, I you know I saw some interviews with the director talking about this is that. It is a film about a female character and what she has to contend with. So it's a story about motherhood. It's a story about womanhood. It's a story about, um, I guess, victimhood to a certain degree, but also she didn't want to portray Yana as a victim, and that's why she's got a strength to her. Mm -hmm. And also some of the, the shots where you see her either turning away from the camera when she's done something yeah. or there's a certain strength to even that one very, very standout scene, which te probably would test anyone's patience. And I think is a significant scene because it's right in the middle of the film where Yana, she's with her son, but she goes into the woods and she lies down mm. and she just lies there. And it's literally, a, I think a seven minute scene where all you do is you just see her lying down, yeah. breathing very, very faintly. But then there's the light that changes on her face and everything. Yeah. And I think because it's it's very central in the film, it really tests your patience, like Tarkovsky would or Haneke would, you know, with some shots. But I remember I was talking to someone about this, and I think it's one of those films that you have to give yourself over to the pacing that the director has chosen mm -hmm. as the pacing for the film. Because I think, you know, if you, if you watch a Michael Bay film, you know that there's going to be a thousand and one cuts. <laughs> yeah. And they're all going to be explosions. Whereas if you watch her film, or like Tarkovsky or Haneke or, you know, some of the French New Wave directors, is you have to buy into the pacing of the film. Because the pacing of the film effectively will tell you how you're meant to react to it and respond to it mm -hmm. and i think once you do that and i think that's why that first scene is is very significant because that scene also is about seven minutes long with a static shot where yana first comes in with the with the kids you know of the community and lines them up against the wall because they've obviously been naughty because yeah. she's got this teacher element so she is sort of a teacher where she's i guess she's in charge of the the, the, the school or the preschool or you know, the education of these children in the community. But that scene also is seven minutes long and people are slowly filtering in and coming into the community and everything. But it's effective, that scene. It's so effective when, you know, the Molotov cocktail gets gets thrown in or two of them are thrown in and it's like they shut the windows and they can't get out and all that. That end of the scene is so effective because of the six minutes and seven minutes that came before it. Yeah. Making us look at something quite ordinary as if we're just observers the camera is not doing anything it's not telling us what to read and how to read it yeah. it's leaving it open-ended for us and i think there's a maturity in a filmmaker that says you know what i'm going to put a lot of the responsibility of the audience how they respond and how they react so that they become an implicit part of the film mm. so we have to do more work and i it's these these are not films for everyone i totally appreciate it but i think if you engage with that you get so many rewards from it because yeah. she's brilliant at doing and there's there's about four or five key scenes which are so heightened 
Oh yeah. With with tension, even the way that the camera, because she only chooses three times to move the camera. Yep. Very very steadily, and I think when that happens, it's effective because she hasn't done it at any other time. Yep. Of course, then I I think you're uh, talking about the detective interrogation scene, right? Yeah. And then absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, like you said, that's definitely one of those like centerpiece sequences, sort of like the opening shot where uh, it's it's very there's minimal sort of movement, and then when something does happen, it's like a it's like a spring chat, like a like a spring. Uh, popping or mm, it's you know yeah. the uh because like a and, released yes yeah mm. and the because it starts with she and the detective sitting at the table together and he's sort of questioning her and then as they're talking it's becoming more and more clear that he's not there to just talk about the case and he's uh asking her these very you know inappropriate sexual questions and and you know kind of like kind of refusing to leave the house and and it's just an unbearably tense scene and then eventually he he walks off and goes and sits on the couch but the camera doesn't move it stays on yana who's sitting at the table and the conversation continues between the two of them uh with him off camera and and her at the table and then when the camera does move it's this really, really, really slow pan to the right as she joins him on the couch. Um, and it's kind of like the the apex of this like really tense, deeply uncomfortable conversation. And uh, I think you're right. I think that her her choice to in a in a way sort of you know test, test us to test maybe our patience um pays off immensely because uh when that it's a small movement right it's the slow pan and mm. in in so many other movies it would go unnoticed you wouldn't you wouldn't think twice about it but in this film uh you know this this very slow pan to the right is like a slap in the face because it's so it breaks the mold of so much of what you see in the rest of the film. Uh, so it's a good way of directing our attention too, right? And letting us almost like announcing like this is this is really important. This is really key because it's uh, it's like a disruption in the pattern of the of the film. Well, it's what it's what turns this film into a horror film for me, but horror in the sense of horrific. Yeah. Because ultimately what you realize there, we might have been told earlier on that this community, you know, doesn't, you know, especially the police, doesn't really care about this community. If anything, they're all complicit in wanting to rid themselves of, you know, their religious community. Yeah. But at that stage, what you realize is that there's a, there's a face of horror to this, which is they there's nowhere that they can turn mm. so even the people that are supposed to protect them are not only not protecting them they're there to interrogate and and create the worst possible situation for them yeah so they're at their mercy and i think that's where she feels the most uh, vulnerable and that's when i think the film turns in a way into something that 
becomes a lot more tense because you don't see the door opening, you know, when she lets him into the house. Yeah. And I think the whole idea of the, the house, because the house of prayer at the beginning, which is burnt down, I think was very symbolic of the idea of somewhere that they're meant to feel protected has been burnt to the ground. Mm. So that first scene is really telling us, you know, the kids might be running around playing and all that sort of stuff. And, but the protection that she has got first, the, the, the church burns down and then her own house is infiltrated as if this guy can come and go as he pleases. And that's what I think sends her out of the house, doesn't it? You know, when there's the mm. later scene, which is even more horrific, which is, it's worth mentioning, but that there is a rape scene. Yeah. But when she goes out of the house and she's kind of wandering, that, that's the scene that reminded me most of Tarkovsky, you know, when she's going through the landscape and she's mm. walking through this river. Because there's, again, there's symbolism there about almost the Garden of Eden. She's oh, wandering yeah. through it. And then that's where he comes in, you know, the, the, uh, the detective. He comes into that scene. He comes into that static shot. So I think she's very good at making these symbolic images that are very, very well referenced to biblical stories and the original sin and the sins. But she also, what she does is she brings it and she updates it and she realizes that this story is far more complex. You know, a woman's story and the idea of victims and antagonists and protagonists and evil and good is not as clear cut. Mm-hmm as we first see, because everyone has got their own motivations to do particularly bad things. Anyone can be pushed into a scenario, even someone that we feel is a good character, can yeah. be pushed into a situation to do the most awful and horrific things. Now, I don't know if that maybe feels like, because this is a film coming out of Georgia, and Georgia has had to suffer its own you know, terrible crimes, hasn't it? Because they went through civil war. Mm-hmm. And they've had a, a, a really torturous history, you know, whether it's to do with religion because it's their bordering of Russia. There's loads of things that go in there that I think can be unpicked at, at root levels. But the, the open-ended nature of the ending and the way that she frames a feminist story in a biblical context, but also updates it through the imagery and through the use of characters and the fact of the mother, you know, having to deal with, uh, having to cope with lots of masculine violence, you Mm -hmm. know, male violence all around her, I think is brilliant. And like you said at the very beginning, for someone to come out with this as their first film is miraculous. But it's, you know, again, across the board, it wasn't a film, because I know that The Guardian didn't actually, I think uh, Peter Bradshaw didn't give it a particularly good review hmm. he, he he lauded her for what she was trying to do but i think he felt that a lot of it was gimmicky but i disagree yeah. i don't think these were gimmicks i think when you've got a first director and she said in an interview she didn't even start she didn't watch her first film until she was about 17 so she's not someone that was steeped in cinema because she didn't have access to a lot of it yeah uh, but yeah. it's very bold it's a very bold film yeah the um Agreed, and I think because you you spoke about watching it for the first time on on movie, and that's where I saw it for the first time as well. And it's I think it's uh, worth noting that at the at the end of the film, there's a good like thirty minute interview between her mm. and uh, uh, is it Luca Guadagnino? Guadagnino, yeah, Guadagnino, yeah. 
and um, and well, that's your guess is as good as mine in terms of <laughs> saying his last name. I'm assuming that's that's the. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah, um, and I think there was, I I forget which award he got, but I I think he was on the panel maybe at Cannes, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, for the award, the award that it got, but. Uh, anyway, I mentioned this because it's a it's a fascinating interview and it's it's uh, worth watching in itself. Definitely. So we've come to the end of this particular chapter. Um, really enjoyed these conversations, Tom, because I think they, I think each one of these films has has got so many merits, and we could talk for hours about them. But uh, I think if people haven't seen it, one or all or any of these films, I think they're well worth checking out. And checking out, you know, the the, the films after that, that that come after, because I think this is one of these great things that, when you're exploring film and you're watching film, it's always nice to be able to put things into context and find, like in music or art, your favorite filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you go back and you might have watched the most recent of their films and just think, oh wow, these are amazing films. I always would would recommend, and I always suggest this to people: is just go back, go back through their catalog, and see where it all began, because you start to see recurring themes, recurring ideas. Because wasn't there one filmmaker? I can't remember who it was that said, uh, "You effectively make one film as a director, mm. and it it kind of plots its way out through your entire catalog." But in a way, the first film that you make, all those themes, all those ideas that come through, usually you'll see them. It's almost like you're making the same film in different ways yeah. throughout your career. Yeah. Well, there's even... Uh, and I, th- I think I think was Renoir. I think it was Jean... Yeah, I think it was Renoir that said that. That sounds right. Yeah. And there's a lot of... Um, I think a lot of people, or even a lot of critics, see that, sometimes see that as a fault... Because they'll look at mm. at someone. Uh, these are uh, you know very different filmmakers, of course. But you'll look at at someone like a Wes Anderson, or a or an Ozu, and mm. or a Fellini, and people will say, oh, they just make the same. They just make the same movie over and over. They revisit the same thing, theme and character type over and over and over. Um, mm. And but yeah, I mean, I don't think. I'm with you though. I, that's that's not. I don't see that as a as a fault. That's a. I think it's fascinating to see a very, a very singular artists, really digging into this their obsessions really, and I think mm-hmm. they, you know, they. I would think they revisit these these things because they're important to them and they're passionate about them. And they want to they want to kind of look at them from all these different angles, and it's it's fascinating to see that progression over sometimes many many films. And you're right, mm-hmm. going going back to that square one to that first film can be very telling. Yeah, but we could be completely wrong because Dea's next film can, could be a romantic comedy. That's true. You never no know. Clue. You never know. <laughs> With a thousand cuts. Yeah, she could do something like. She could say, you know, Michael Bay is my main influence, and yeah. here's my Michael Bay movie, right? <laughs> Transformers yeah. Seven. Yeah, yeah. I hope, I hope not. I hope, I hope she's not uh, recruited by Marvel. Not that I, I don't, I don't think Marvel's going to be calling her or anything. But yeah, but you never know. Yeah, but that, but that's a case in point, isn't it? Because Chloe Zhao, who just made The Eternals, you know, who has a very distinctive voice in the films that she made before with The Rider and Nomadland and. 
you know, which are really smaller stories about individuals and very strong characters, you could still see thematically there was things that she was bringing into a Marvel franchise. That's true. You're right. You're right. And come to think of it, we, we, we talked about that with Ryan Johnson, right? With him taking on a Star Wars film. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so, true. I mean, you might take on a franchise. And you might be taken on because a lot of these big franchises look for these directors that have got singular voices because it might give them a little bit more kudos and they want to do something different. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're bootstrapped, I think, by the idea of, you know, the, the massive franchise. But equally, you can't... I don't think someone with a voice is just going to do it for the paycheck. They're obviously mm-hmm. going to try and infuse whatever franchise or film that they take on or, uh, you know, a responsibility, but they're still going to have, you can't take those elements out of those directors. You might try and disguise it through the edit, but they're always going to creep their way through. Yeah, for sure. And it, yeah, I mean, it, and it, it adds, it certainly adds uh, value and, and newness to what could become, you know, kind of stale franchises. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining in, whoever the everyone is. Yeah. Let's hope that there's a few everyone's. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll be back with the the next series of episodes, which we'll be looking at director debuts pre two thousand. So yeah. looking into the twentieth century of film directors. Can't wait. Me too. So thanks, and and uh, yeah, see you next time.